Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Matt Fuller, broker of record with Jackson Fuller Real Estate. My guest today is an architectural photographer with a family link to one of Northern California's most iconic property developers of the 20th century. Welcome to the show. David Eichler. So David, what is architectural photography? Let's start there. A lot of people might say it's as simple as taking pictures of architectural subjects. If you really want to be serious about it, more than that, it's mostly it's taking pictures primarily for architects and and publications that feature architectural subject matter. And there are conventions that have have developed over time as to how to render architectural subjects in two dimensions that started before photography with painting and drawing. And some of those uh, conventions have transferred to the medium of photography. So I I would say that a lot of it involves photographing architectural projects for the portfolios of architects and related designers, often to be used in to promote their businesses and just generally to document the subjects for posterity as well. I think that's the simple description. So when I look at a set of your photographs for a building, I'm number one, just blown away completely. But number two, I can tell like this is a professional, professional photographer, right? Architectural photography or like the best of, of photography that we're describing, it's in a class by itself. And is it in a class by itself because you spend a lot of time in advance figuring out your subject? Or is it because you spend a lot of time in post, you know, tweaking the image? Or is it all of the above? Without giving your secrets away, how do you consistently deliver such amazing photographs? Well, it's kind of all of the above. It takes a lot of time. And architectural, photographing architectural subject matter and somewhat include interior design subject matter in this as well, since it's kind of a related genre. And there's different, somewhat of a difference between architectural interiors and interiors where you're concentrating mainly on the decor and the the furnishings and stuff, but they're still very much related. It's very different from photographing, doing portraits or product, tabletop product photography. It's a genre unto itself, and it has very specific techniques and logistical considerations that are related to it. And, And yes, ideally, it, a lot of it tends to have to do with the amount, simply the amount of time that you can spend with a subject, because usually if there's any amount of significant daylight component to the lighting, you're dependent upon that, even though I may add quite a bit of my own supplementary lighting at, at times, especially for interiors. Uh, the daylight is a very important feature usually, unless you're shooting at night or in some interiors where there's no daylight coming in. So time of day, weather conditions are can be critical. You know, sometimes if, you, if you're just doing, say, two shots, exterior shots of a building, you know, you're shooting one side of the building and another side of the building, you may need to shoot those at very different times of day. So it could very well take you a whole day just to shoot those two shots because you got to do one in the morning and one in the afternoon or the evening. So there can be a lot, quite a bit of time involved, both in scouting out the locations to determine 
what are going to be the best compositions, times of day, doing the shooting. There can be a lot of time in the post as well. So it is a very time-consuming kind of uh, process. And then on top of that, not all photographers do this, but I tend to do a fair amount of lighting for my interiors. So that means bringing in lighting equipment, maybe using an assistant or no assistants to help with that. So it, it gets pretty complex. So on average, I know, obviously, every subject, every photography shoot is different. But, you know, I mean, it sounds like this is not, you know, you come in for an hour, you take some pictures of something that's not moving. But your average shoot, we're talking, you know, a half day, day, days. And that's just being on site, not including your prep time in advance and obviously your post time afterwards. Right. Yeah, not every, I mean, different projects have different considerations because of timing, budget, legit, you know, access to the, you know, the property and so forth. But, but ideally, say if I'm photographing a home, the client wants fairly comprehensive coverage of, of the inside and the outside, I would want to spend typically a minimum of a full day doing the photography itself. And that's not even counting whatever time I might spend scouting ahead of time if that's possible to do and processing time later on. It's just one exterior shot. Yeah, that might take a couple of hours, assuming I can determine ahead of time the right time of day for that and the weather cooperates. But once you start getting much beyond that, you're really into at least a half day to a full day on most projects. And, and there are projects that can take days. I mean, it depending if the subject warrants it, and the client, you know, has the budget for it, multiple days potentially, you know, could be required. Maybe, you know, even projects that clients have had photographed over the course of a year or even several years because the, the landscaping grows out and they want to capture that and they want to show the property under different weather conditions. I mean, obviously that gets pretty expensive. So it's a lot of clients can't afford that level of shooting, but, but it's something it can happen. So one of the reasons I, I'm asking you kind of these detailed questions about how much time you put into a shoot is when people see the price tags for professional photographers, particularly architectural photography, it is not inexpensive. But people think that just because every smartphone has a camera in it, we're all great photographers. There is so much more that goes into it, clearly. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you, it's possible to get a great shot with your cell phone if the conditions are just right and you know what you're, you're doing. I mean, the, the technical, you can't blow it up as much, perhaps, compared to using a, you know, the kind of camera that, that a, a pro would use. But you know, it's technically, it, it, theoretically, it's possible, but you just, there's just so much, the conditions have to be exactly right for that. And a lot of the time, and that's almost interiors in particular are very technically challenging. I mean, it's almost getting an exterior shot, say, with a simple camera, if it's the light is just right, is more likely than getting a great interior shot. Interiors are, are just a whole thing unto themselves because of the extreme lighting challenges that we often find in interiors. Right. Light and shadow and angles can make interiors just so incredibly difficult to, to photograph. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is I kind of think of it as like basketball or football or any sport. It's like I can go out and play any of those sports right now today, and that doesn't qualify me to play in the NFL or the Premier League of any sport. And I think it's the, very similar with photography. Right. You might even have a great jump shot just playing around on the schoolyard, but <laughs> once you get into a game with real you know, pros, and that doesn't do you much good. <laughs> 
Right. And can I consistently deliver it? You know, do I want to count on it? So how long have you been doing this, David? I've been serious about photography since I was a kid, 10, 12 years old. I went to the New England School of Photography much earlier in life, although I was thinking in terms of doing something other than architectural photography at the time. So I've taken it quite seriously. But I did not get into doing, but then I got sidetracked by other things in terms of uh, a career for a good part of my life, although continuing to do photography on and off for all throughout that time. But as far as doing it, architectural photography and doing it professionally, I've been doing it for about 10 years now. Wow, that's some staying power. That's really awesome. You mentioned uh, you kind of first, you know, got into photography when you were like 10 to 12 years old. Do you remember what the first quote-unquote real camera you had was? Yeah, it was a Minolta single-lens reflex. I think the first pictures I took were actually with like a simple, you know, box brownie camera. I I took a darkroom course at a local community, uh, and I think some of my first photos were shooting the hippies in Golden Gate Park during, you know, around the 67, 66, 67. But yeah, I think my first real camera was was a Minolta single-lens reflex. What a great story. What a great introduction to photography. What are the best and worst parts of the of the job from your point of view? Well, I think most creative people would say the business is the worst part of the job. I mean, that, that's something a lot of creative people just don't really, you know, they just want to get on with, with being creative. There's nothing creative about making invoices. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yeah, there's cre- certainly creativity in business, of, of course, in the kind of business that you have to do to be a professional photographer or illustrator or something like that there's not much creativity in business at the end of it i would say Uh, it's pretty basic stuff it's just you know it's doing the mechanics of you know you have to do you know networking and marketing and stuff like that to a certain amount and that's a little less cut and dry but it's still something that a lot of creative people don't necessarily like doing much so i would say that's probably the worst part of it the best part is just doing it, is being out, you know, is shooting. Uh, shooting can be very hard and, time, you know, it takes a lot of time and you're on your feet for long periods of time usually. And, you know, it can be challenging. And sometimes there's, you're working with other people on, on site. Maybe you're working with a client uh, or their client on site and, and you might be with them for an entire day. So it's, you know, there's sometimes some challenges with that. But, you know, I think it's still, you know, pretty rewarding. The post-processing end of the process, some people like that a lot. Some people hate it. Sometimes I have sort of a both minds. Sometimes I enjoy it. It takes a lot of time, and it can be really tedious sometimes, too. So it's kind of, I can be of two minds about that. And just seeing the finished product and getting positive responses from the clients is a great feeling, too. So what's been the the most uh, kind of challenging shoot you've ever had to do in terms of, uh, you know, either location or lighting? Anything stand out? It's like every, almost every shoot's a challenge in some way. It's it's kind of different. I mean, it's a little hard to say. I, I, you know, I would say in many ways, the less, I don't know if I'd say the less interesting, but projects that have really been limited by the budget in many ways can sometimes be really challenging because of the fundamental quality of, of photography is light. You're so dependent upon that. That's what really makes or breaks the shot. And in my opinion, you know, composition and of course are, are essential as well, but you don't get a great composition and poor lighting really doesn't get you anywhere for the most part, if you're trying to create a compelling picture, you know, beyond just documenting the subject. 
you know, just dealing with subjects that have really, you know, really mediocre lighting and having to create a lot of the lighting effects on my own from almost from scratch. I mean, those can be the most challenging things because it's, yeah, I know people do that in a studio every day, but they're under very controlled conditions with, you know, with their control of the entire, all of the, the lighting and they have sort of freedom to move around the subject and in a studio shooting a product or something where if you're in a building you may be contending with some ambient lighting conditions that are really nasty and you can't necessarily eliminate all of those and just create your own light completely from scratch you have to address the existing lighting and somehow blend that together with your own lighting and make something that's really compelling and that could even be on a pretty basic project. In fact, it's more often the case that the greatest architectural works tend to have have considered the quality of the lighting. Your technical challenge is more just a matter of being able to render the extremes of the lighting as opposed to having to you know, really overpower the existing lighting and create something new. It's not a particular project necessarily, but it's a sort of sort of a genre of projects that I perhaps are the most challenging. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight about, you know, kind of the more famous architectural buildings have given more thought to those subjects. So then, you know, that's I had never really thought about that. What an interesting insight. Thank you. So what has been your do you have any favorites now that I've asked you about the miserable part? Do you have like a favorite Picture you've taken over the years, a favorite building or just uh, a favorite shoot that you have great memories of? Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily do at this point. I mean, it might happen at some point. I can't say that there's a particular picture. I mean, because it changes all the time. I'm constantly kind of going through my library, you know, looking for stuff to use in my you know, my portfolio, and sometimes I cycle through past stuff and reuse it in my portfolio if, it's, if I haven't used it for a while. So I'm constantly reviewing what I've done. I can't, I don't know that there's any one, I mean, there's certain images that have, te- that have stayed in my portfolio consistently for a long time, whether they're, it's because they're my favorite or simply show something in particular I want to show to potential clients. I don't know if I can differentiate there. Yeah, I don't know that I can say that I have a, it's something that particularly stands out. I find it's whatever the next project is that I'm really most excited about. That's awesome. So I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. You are the grandchild, grandson of Joseph Eichler, who was a, a very famous uh, or well-known Northern California property developer. And in fact, the way we came in contact with each other is you reached out to me because I had miscategorized and misrepresented uh, your father's role. I had called him the architect, and he wasn't the architect. So how did Joseph Eichler, as your grandfather, influence your view of architecture? Well, I think it's, you know, it's inevitably been an, an influence on me being around his, his homes and his business. I th- certainly think it's, more, it's given me a, a strong sense of the modern style of architecture and by extension the the contemporary architecture that's developed out of that and i think maybe also just a certain a certain feeling about modernism sort of you know how certain types certain elements of that style that particularly appeal to me and there's different kind of sub branches of that that have grown out of that I, you know i don't know if i could be in any more specific than that but just that it really made me uh, sensitive to design and, and architecture and modernism. I think very much 
my both my grandparents were very uh, devoted to modernism. They were not people that were living in the past a lot. They did not have you go to their home. They did not, it, you know, it was a very modern feeling home. Not, nothing really. The, the homes my grandfather built had people that found to be quite adaptable in many ways. You can see people with very eclectic kinds of furnishings in, in the home, sometimes even a, a mixture of traditional and, and contemporary stuff all kind of mixed together. But you go, you know, my grandparents' residences were always very modern, very up-to-date in their style. Just no, not even old family photos or something like that. It was all just up-to-date. So there's uh, two areas of San Francisco that are, are known for Eichler uh, homes. One is Diamond Heights, uh, and then obviously Joseph Eichler, your grandfather, developed the summit. 999 Green, and uh, he actually lived at 999 Green for a while, correct? What was that like hanging out at the, the top of that building as a kid? That's probably some great memories. It was, yeah, I still remember that uh, somewhat. Uh, that you know, and I was old enough by that time to have a little more memory of that. And you know, he lived in the penthouse units, the one that faces north, so it had a great panoramic view. Uh, from the Golden Gate, I think you could probably see just about see over the Bay Bridge as well from there, and so it was really an impressive view from there. And it was, you know, it was not a very nice apartment, of course, as well. So it's kind of interesting, this also to kind of see the different places that he lived. The only two I really remember well are his house in in Atherton. They lived in Lindenwood, the penthouse at the summit. He also, at the end of his life, built a house in Hillsborough which I only visited once or twice, so I don't remember that very well. So when your grandfather was alive and actively involved in property development, it was the late 1950s, the 1960s, and to say that there was a lot going on in American society at that time is an understatement. And your grandfather was actually pretty controversial at the time for his stance on racism in real estate by which I mean he was one of the few to actually stand up and actively be against the racism that was happening at that time. Do you remember any of that, or were you too young for that, or do you remember any of those conversations or experiences? Yeah, no, I was really too young for that at the time. I don't, I don't remember that any of that when I was young. My father, who was in the business with my grandfather quite a while, did relate some of the his the, his experiences to me, so I that that was really more of how I found out about that particular feature of my grandfather's history. Yeah, I mean, I've always you know I've always loved the style in which your grandfather had properties developed and buildings, and when I found out that about him, they just made him an extra good guy. So I was curious how that might have rubbed off on you. I mean, I just feel good that he took that stand. I mean, I think it was not an easy stand to take, and he could have suffered for it, you know, economically. Maybe he did, as far as probably did to some extent, as far as I know, but fortunately not too drastically. If I remember correctly, he literally withdrew from the California Builders Association over that. Yeah, he sure did. Yep. It was quite a big deal because actually, you know, while he was doing that, you know, the California Association of Realtors at the state level was actually working uh, to repeal fair housing laws. So he was way out ahead in advance of the rest of the real estate industry 
And, you know, what he did was absolutely, to your point, took a lot of risk and he probably did lose some money because of it. So speaking of that, like, what's it like having a recognizable last name? Does the, the shadow of your grandfather's buildings kind of follow you around? Or is it uh, a great way to, to start a conversation? Yeah, sure. It's, it's always a, a nice way to start a conversation. You know, it's nice that he's still, uh, you know, recognized in, in the Bay Area. I think he would be very pleased about that. I'm not sure he would have imagined that his, his homes would still be so popular, maybe more popular than ever for all these years, and that they would have stood the test of time. And, and I'm sort of you know, I'm glad to, to be associated with that, if only by virtue of my <laughs> birth. <laughs> People are you know, just really enthusiastic about and want to talk about them. I mean, love them or hate them. They're really, you know, very interested in them. I think the other question I have for you right there is, you know, you've probably been, you know, photographing some of your grandfather's buildings for decades now. How you see the buildings or the buildings themselves kind of changed dramatically over time? Or has that kind of been static throughout your experience? That's actually, this has kind of been an interesting experience because, of course, I was able to see the, the homes when they were first built, a couple of them at, when I was a kid. So I was very familiar with the original feel of the homes. And then, of course, later on, I get to see what people have done with them. Some things that, I'm not, that don't look that I'm not that, that I don't like so much. And my grandfather would probably not have, have liked so much. But then some other very interesting updates that have been very well done as well. So I get to everything in between so it's, it's been interesting seeing what has happened with the homes over time you know i think my grandfather would be pleased with some of the, the updates that are done of the homes there's a sort of a purist element to some of the eichler uh, enthusiasts they're, they really like want to maintain the original look of the homes that are not don't want to change anything and they'll even you know try to furnish the homes with furnishings that are you know mid-century modern and that you know that's great if they like to do that i don't think my grandfather would have been a purist about it i think he'd be perfectly happy to, to see the homes updated appropriately to modern tastes and standards and i'm sure if he were building today he'd be doing things somewhat differently than he did in the 50s and 60s well i also find it kind of ironic you know that developer and architectural style that for its time was, you know, cutting edge, avant-garde, brand new, clearly a man not afraid to take risks. And now, you know, the reaction to those properties are like, don't touch a thing, right? Like must be completely historically preserved to the, the nth degree, which is absolutely not kind of the spirit in which it was built to start with. I think it's great if some, at least there are some examples of the original style are retained just for posterity. I don't expect that to be unless somebody literally wants to make a, a few museum pieces out of a few properties. I don't think that ever, you know, I think it's, it's very hard to stop change. And I don't think for the most part, change has to happen. People have to progress and adapt. Yeah, 999 Summit is 50 years old, roughly, and those units have changed and uh, adapted and the building as well over time. So sure. what do you think, uh, you know, we kind of met through a, a misunderstanding on my part. What do you think the, the biggest misunderstanding about your grandfather, Joseph Eichler, is? I think by far it's the, the common one that I raised in your case, which was that people, a lot of people think my grandfather was an architect, which was, is not the case. He's a builder. But really, uh, he was very much invested in the design of his homes. He was, that was the driving force of what he was doing. 
you know, he hired very skilled architects to do the work for him. A lot of builders, the architecture is not that so important. It's just something to get, I mean, they're not even necessarily hiring name architects to do the work. They're just, it's just somebody to get the the stuff done and get it sold. and, And that's it. They're not, you know, my grandfather was very much, I mean, he could have made more money and been much more successful if he hadn't have been so uh, invested in the design of, of this particular style of home. The whole genesis of microhomes came about because of my grandfather having lived for a couple of years in a Frank Lloyd Wright house in Hillsboro. And then he wanted to get, after he had moved out of that, he wanted to try to get a modern house built for himself that somewhat along the lines of the one he had lived in, subsequently discovered he couldn't do it because it was too expensive for him. But then the architect, Robert Anshin, who he had hired to do the plans for that that house that never got built, came to him once my grandfather had started in the building business, just building routine tracked homes, not what we know now as Eichler homes. Anshin came to him with some you know designs for modern style tracked homes, and the rest is history. That is such a, a great story. I appreciate you reaching out to to clarify so very much. Before we wrap things up, like any final comments on you know photography, architectural photography, your grandfather, anything in general? I think we've covered quite a bit of the essentials. Can't think of anything offhand. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope this podcast finds you in good spirits and health. And if you found this enjoyable and useful, I'd appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend or leave us a five-star review in your favorite podcast app. You've been listening to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast.